I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know what? I think you're going to love this week's podcast. We're going to talk about degrowth because James Strain, one of our listeners, suggested it as a topic. He says, it seems to me that this is imperative to our transition to a more sustainable society, but it breaks so many long-held fundamentals in mainstream economics that it's hard to see how we'd begin to make the transition. Well, there is an elegant solution of how to adapt the economy in a way that will see us consuming less. But as you might expect, it means those who have the most have the most to lose. But maybe... If they're forced to adopt, now we're not quite advocating a revolution, but we have a plan, or Steve has a plan, uh, which might have a more effective way of saving the planet whilst reducing the rich-poor gap. Intrigued? Well, you should be. It's an idea we've discussed before, but we expand on it today. I absolutely love this idea, so stay with us. It's the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So remember the time before COVID when climate change was a thing? Do you remember that? In 2019, when Greta Thunberg told the politicians at the UN Climate Week, saying that uh, they, all they talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? She said, you might remember. It's interesting, isn't it? That since then, we've actually seen big falls in GDP during the pandemic. The IMF reckons globally the economy shrank by 3.5% uh, last year. For advanced economies, it sell, uh, fell almost 5%, 7.2% for the euro area, and 10% for the UK. So you'd imagine if that was the case, then we would have runaway unemployment, particularly as the world trade in volume terms for goods and services has dropped 10% across the planet. But no, we're actually managing to hold on to a reasonable number of our jobs. By and large, the UK unemployment rate for September to November was 5%. If we go back to the financial crisis 2008 to 2009, Unemployment rate rose to 8.2%. In the 80s, of course, it was almost 12%. So we've escaped without massive unemployment. So, Steve, we have degrowth, but we don't have an equal fall in jobs. That must mean we're all becoming a little bit less productive. That is degrowth, isn't it? So uh, is is there anything we can perhaps learn in, in the last year as we look forward to how we cope with climate change? I, th- I think there's one possibility of doing it, yeah, because, I mean, a large amount of the costs we incur are costs that are incurred to earn an income in the first place. So you've got to, you know, you've got to hop on a car and drive to your office in the city or you pay the train to get there, you buy food when you're in the office, et cetera, et cetera. And that expenditure on somebody, you know, somebody else's income, that's a large part of of GDP uh, generated by the by the need to earn income in the first place. But if uh, the trouble is, there are they've got the people who are suffering out of that are the sandwich shops and uh, and the and the you know the bus conductors and the uh, the taxi drivers and so on who used to earn income out of it. So it certainly isn't the case that everybody's just cut back their costs and has more. Uh, net income over the top. There'd be people suffering very badly out well, yeah, of Yeah, I mean, because I, I look at how much my wife spends on, mm. you know, the, the clothes that she needs to wear to go to the office. Mm. Back at home, it's not so hard. 
no, she just would be wearing tracky dacks at home. She doesn't care. Um, so yeah, an enormous amount of money spent on on trying to earn uh, an income. And in fact, you know, the, the interesting figures from the Bank of England last year, from a survey they conducted between August and September, twenty eight percent of those surveyed had accumulated savings as a result of the pandemic. Twenty uh, percent had you know depleted their savings, and not surprisingly, it's the, it's the well off who saved more, and the poor who saw their savings decrease. Forty two percent of high income households, uh, the, high, the people in the top quintile, forty two percent of them saw their savings increase. But even in the lowest quintile, twenty three percent had saved more uh, as a result. Um, so um, yeah, so we, we are saving. I don't know what we do with those savings. Are we going to go on a spending splurge? Well, this, 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 is, this is one of the catches, which you know, is, is important. There is no such thing as savings at the aggregate level. Mm. Uh, this is one little point I make in that cartoon book that uh, Miguel and I put together, which I've got to actually you know, go and see with the publisher, just how close that is to coming out. But at the aggregate level, because expenditure is income, there is no gap between the two. Uh, we can call savings. At the individual level, your individual earning and individual income, there can be a difference. So you can save some of the existing money. What that means is the stock of money in your bank account goes up because more has come in as income than has gone out, but it's a change in the stock of money. Now, when you look at the aggregate level, the only way to change the stock of the money is to banks to lend more, which goes on hand with more debt, or the government to spend more than it gets back in taxation. So at the aggregate level, there is no such thing as savings. And when you try, when you say we're saving more money, what you mean is the amount of money is turning over less rapidly, yeah. and you have less GDP coming out of it uh, because we're so spending it, less. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, that's, that's what's causing a fall on the GDP. One of the things causing a fall on the GDP. But for the planet. I mean, you know, there's two factors here. Well, what's best for the economy, but what's best for the planet? For the planet, presumably, we would want to see it turning over less, wouldn't we? Well, this is the next thing. We've got far too much uh, physical production on the planet. And with courtesy, to a large degree, we can blame economists for putting us this situation. Uh, As you know from my work on Nordhaus's garbage um, and Richard Tolls and a few others. Um, so yes, we, we've overloaded the planet dramatically and we've got to go in the opposite direction. So it's not the monetary side of things we need to reduce, it's the energy side of things and the, and the pollution and waste side of things that we mm. need to bring down. And they would have fallen to some extent, but nowhere near enough to make a, make a dent in our pressure on the, uh, on the economy. And particularly when you look at carbon dioxide, even though you're producing less, what that means is the flow of new carbon dioxide into the stock of it in the planet is reduced. But to actually reduce the stock of it, you've got to have the flow in being less than the flow out, where the flow out reflects reabsorption of carbon by the carbon-6 on the planet. And we've got nowhere near that. So even though we've had a reduction in the amount of CO2 being pumped out by industry, uh, there's still been an increase in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. So we're still going in the wrong direction in terms but of we did damage it. We, to the planet. We were better at it last year because we had less production, because we had less consumption, because we had COVID. So uh, mm. and And during that time, even though I, I get what you're saying at the aggregate level, but individually, people are seeing, you know, people look at their bank accounts and they're thinking, oh, that looks a bit healthy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and they are going to, once all this is over, splurge that, I suspect. But the other alternative would be to say, don't splurge it. For example, uh, save it. You know, if there, if there was the right incentive to say, well, OK, you know, hang on to it for your for your retirement because we're all going to be living longer. If there's some sort of government policy which incentivized you to to do that, then that would um, then that would slow your consumption down. 
that would be a good thing. I mean, would that be a smart move for the player? Well, for the, yeah, but the thing is, the question of whether, whether those sorts of moves are enough to mean we can get to the stage where we have a sustainable physical mm. production system on the biosphere. And, and my, uh, I mean, particularly having taken a look at how economists have conned themselves and conned us in the process, uh, and, and knowing what I've seen, the th- things like the human ecological footprint, which calculates humans alone are using, I think, 1.7 times the renewable capacity of the planet per year. That's not including what the trivial rem- remnants of, of non non-human dominated life forms are doing with the planet's own reproductive capability. So we've got to at least halve uh, the load we put on the planet, probably more than half. And mm. and then the question is, can, can we do it the way we're talking about? And when it comes down to individuals con- consuming less and therefore having less of a load on the planet, uh, as you said a moment ago, it's not the rich who are doing that. Uh, the rich are probably doing consuming less now uh, because you know they they can't go to uh, Ascom and and they can't fly off to Switzerland for the skiing holiday blah blah blah, so they're accumulating it that way. Then they're doing slightly less less consumption, but nowhere near enough to mean we get to the point where we're using say one third the resources we, we we're using at the moment. And it's literally I think we've got to get to that scale. I, I really don't think there's any possibility of a sustainable. Uh, society on this planet while we continue with current levels we've got to be talking something of the order of one quarter the current mm. load we put on the planet then we have a chance to turn the ecology which, around yeah which is a, which is a, a, a huge dimension isn't it a, a huge change uh, and 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 you know we are at the moment all we're talking about is how can we do things the, the way that we're doing them now but doing them in a way which is going to be better for the planet so should we drive electric cars and should we put our waste out uh, for recycling and all mm-hmm. those small things which are going to make no difference because at the same time we're also saying well we want gdp to grow and we have this gdp fixation but with the, is that the number we've got a target should governments be saying well, well okay I, I, I know it's not enough but should they be saying well actually we want zero percent gdp growth because that is going to be sustainable how does the economy operate when you well, when you I, accept I, that? I don't think. Or, it's or actually, we say, you know, or, or we say we had ten percent fall in GDP in the UK this year. We're going to do that every year from now on. Well, I, think it's, I don't think it's actually the size of GDP. I think it's the distribution that matters. And this right. is the this is the point that I've, I've been you know I've been talking about the idea of carbon rationing as one way to re- reverse the uh, reverse mm, the load we're putting on the planet. Idea. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, like, I think we, we talk about the carbon rationing idea earlier. Another yeah, we point? have. We have. Okay. But do, do it again. It was so good. I think people want to hear it again. They okay, want to well, be refreshed. Basic idea is that we realise that we have uh, we're having an impact on the planet, courtesy of the, the load we're putting on the environment. So what we have is we work out a, a an average work out the average CO two output for an economy, and then everybody. Uh, gets a per capita amount, which is that average, uh, mm. as, a, as a you know you do it on a continuous time basis or once a year, whatever. They get that carbon ration, and then when they spend, they pay the monetary price as well as the carbon price of whatever they're buying. And in that situation, because of the skewed nature of the distribution of income, even if you gave everybody the average, ninety to ninety-five percent of the population would be below that average in terms of their current consumption generation of carbon dioxide. And so they'd end up with the the with excess carbon credits, whereas the rich, the top one percent to five percent, maybe even ten percent, uh, would run out of carbon credits. I think most likely the top five percent, I'd say, would run out of carbon credits, and they'd have to buy carbon credits off the 
poor and middle class to be able to mm. continue consuming. So that so would, it's a good. So it, it modifies their behaviour because they'll probably not want to uh, consume as much as they normally would have done in these times. But it also acts as a, a wealth redistribution exercise. Yeah, the, the rich have got to buy stuff off the poor, and and mm. that's the sort of change. With it. That's the real Robin Hood we need, not the one that we we're talking about the stock market last week. But that's the sort of thing to do. But I thought of a way of extending it, and that is to work out a human energy budget. Okay, uh, because we we know we would also be able to calculate now what level of economy could we support purely on renewable energy by some target point in the future. Uh, like we set our target for, say, 2030, for example, and say, okay, by 2030, we want to have an economy which is just using renewable energy. So the energy part of our economy uh, would be generating zero carbon. There's other, other ways in which we use carbon, things like you know, concrete, uh, manufacturing processes, et cetera, et cetera, generate it. But to say just for the energy sector, we want to have zero carbon by 2030, well, what you could work out is a human energy budget, which says that uh, this is the amount of energy per capita that every uh, that is the average level that people uh, are consuming at. And the you you if you go above that human and energy budget, then you also run out of your your energy component. You've got to buy that off other people. This this sort of system would be a, a way of of putting the, the the pressure on the reduction of GDP, not on the middle class and the poor, uh, but putting it on the wealthy. And that's what we need so to do. So that makes perfect sense to me. And I'm wondering why, uh, when so many minds have been concentrated for so long on this issue, we've, we've not seen anything, uh, you know, a concrete proposal like that coming from anywhere else. So I know you're a big fan of the Club of Rome, but the Club of Rome's been at this for a long time. I mean, the limits to growth is back in 1972. They have published yeah. 45 reports since then. They have uh, 35 national associations. I don't see any concrete proposals coming out of the Club of Rome, except for, you know, they they launched, for example, the Finance Impact Hub last year, mm. uh, and they've worked with financial institutions and central banks and the like, and they're working on plans for a decade of action that will enable the necessary change in systems to ensure long-term environmental and social sustainability. But how? You know, there's nothing specifically to say what they're going to do. And there's a lot of organizations like this are saying, yeah, we need to do this. Oh, we really need to fix climate change but no one's actually saying how and what exactly are we going to do and if they do it's all small stuff like we should plant more trees yeah i mean this is i mean i'm actually involved with the climate of the room now as it happens i get invited into their their regular regular meetings about planning so i'm putting those ideas forward there as well but you're mm. right i mean it, 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 there's a very naive level of politics to groups like the Club of Rome and so many environmental groups, they think if we only get the government policies right, everything's going to be fine. Well, the government, is, as we've seen certainly in, uh, over the last 20 or 30 years, there's so much effective lobbying of them by the fossil fuel interests and economists have helped obscure the whole thing as well. The government policy has been ineffective uh, and carbon, you know, carbon pricing has also been ineffective. So and all these ineffective things, uh, which have been fine for what I've now seen people describe as the climate inactivists, the ones who want us to take 
take no action on climate whatsoever have been very successful. And if we continue looking at doing this through a, a government policy uh, and saying the government should do this and the government should do that, we won't get mechanisms put in place that actually force anybody to change anything. And we'll just career into those limits. And then when we start seeing ecological breakdowns like the one that Kim Stanley Robinson was made the, the, the centerpiece of his new book, uh, the, the um, uh, Ministry for the Future, and like a, 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 wet, a well, wet bulb temperature catastrophe in India, then at that point we'll react, but we won't have anything in place to do anything about it. So we're going to stumble our way into, into a, you know, a degrowth is going to be forced upon us unless we do something which lets us redirect right now and that's why i'm well, thinking of things like, be, well, yeah right and it'll be forced upon us because there'll be less people to consume because they will have died yeah, so yeah. that's that yeah so the uh, it seems to me as well that you know we are hearing a lot from from bodies that feel like they should be saying stuff making noises but uh, again they're either ineffectual or mm. or you know it is just uh, window dressing so the bank mm. of england for example is there saying you know we're we're trying to help the the, the country and the world transition to a low carbon economy uh, and the Bank of England, you know, they admit economic growth places greater demand on the, the world's natural resources and, and climate. So that's nice coming from mm. a central bank. So what are they going to do about it? Nowhere do they talk about slow growth. Mm. They just talk about using technologies that are going to have less impact. And they reckon, 90, I don't know where this figure comes from, 90 trillion US dollars global investment is going to be needed in the next 10 years if we're going to need, meet that commitment to, uh, to uh, for two degrees centigrade increase uh, as the climate target 90 trillion dollars that's for so we have, that's to, spend, four, we have four, to spend four, money to achieve it for united states gdps in 10 years that's that's yeah. the, an idea of the scale they're talking about yeah uh, whereas what what could happen if we actually forced our consumption levels to drop drastically as well and that's the idea of this human energy budget to work out what, what level of energy per capita is consistent with 100 percent renewable energy by some date in the future and therefore that that becomes the way we work out what our targets are. Um, mm. So something of that nature that lets us put, put a, a, a quantify and say what what sort of life is involved. What it, when you work out that human energy budget, what sort of lifestyle does it mean? Is it a lifestyle of somebody in Bangladesh or is it a lifestyle of somebody in Brixton? Um, you know, it's if we, we if we knew that initially, then we'd at least be able to put some human scale on the level of degrowth we need to have a sustainable society. Well, you, do you know what? I mean, I think a lot of the rich would maintain and, and have maintained their lifestyle over the, the last year. So, um, you know, I'm, I live in Surrey. So uh, I'm probably the poorest person in uh, certainly in Western Surrey because here it's countryside and horses. And look, you know, the very rich have got really big houses. Uh, OK, they might be spending a bit to, to heat it up and that might not be good for the planet. But, you know, by and large, they uh, they're, they're out with the, trotting around the, uh, the countryside on their on their horses pretending not to shoot foxes <laughs> the uh, they um, you know th their lifestyle could still be very nice with very little consumption I suspect because they've got it all already yeah well the, the thing is they if they had the, the combination of you know, carbon rationing so they've got to buy carbon of other people to be able to do it and then mm. a human energy budget working out just how many times that budget they're currently operating at and giving us an idea of what the average needs to be, we might finally get the attention back on the distribution of income and power in society, which is a major reason why we've ended up in the situation in the first place. And the, the right. major block, I mean, things like you know, carbon pricing and so on, the major block of if, if the, any of the system like that is that it's, when, when you look at it, it's the people who 
you know, the working class who vote Republican and vote Tory, they're the ones who who are first affected by it. And this is going to make them vote Republican and, and Tory with even more passion. So you need something which says, OK, if you vote for this, you're going to come out ahead because you're going to get a carbon ration you can sell for a profit to the wealthy lot. And your human energy budget is only slightly out of whack, maybe even above the level that's necessary. So you're not vulnerable. But this, you know, the top 5% of the population, they're the ones who are going to have to suffer. Then you've got some chance for a, a political movement which might get somewhere. But it has to be a political movement, doesn't it? It does have to be at the moment, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, because that was going to be a point I was going to make. When you look at uh, any of the proposals that are made by think tanks and, uh, and bodies that are looking at this, for example, opendemocracy.net has got five principles for degrowth. Uh, and some of the, you know, so they the, the, they say we need to democratize society, whatever that is. So mm. the, the uh, you know, so participation for marginalized groups. And I was looking at that, thinking, what's that got to do with climate change? For example, they say including feminist principles into politics and the economic system. And thinking, I do feel like now this is um, nothing against uh, feminists, and uh, you know, I think uh, you know, a big supporter of their cause. But I'm not quite sure how that gets tied into climate change. You do get the impression that with a lot of these groups. Uh, you get a group of people together and say, "Okay, let's let's come up with five principles for degrowth of the economy because that's going to uh, help with climate change." And then you just get this grab bag of of ideas that are, you know, of, of, of things that uh, you know socialist supporters would say we we want to see, mm, rather yeah. than fixed on the problem. Looking rather than looking at the economic because it's a it's an economic issue, isn't it? That we're fa- I mean, obviously it's it's uh, it's the environment that we're looking at but we're only going to solve it with an economic solution yeah and 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 one which actually gets a wide, widespread support uh, even yeah. because you know i mean i think people are being led up a, a garden path which is actually the path to hades right now and again economics is massively responsible for that level of delusion uh, we could have changed direction 50 years ago and we could have done this gradually and it would have been a non-talking point but now when we hit those resource constraints if and 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 the feedback on 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 our uh, you know agricultural systems and everything else that climate change is going to mean uh, when it happens if there's no structure in place to put the burden on the wealthy of the adjustment then the poor are going to riot and rebel and we're going to see uh, you know, a very violent world, and I'm trying to find some way, at least, to having a mechanism that means that if that hits, then it's the wealthy who pay for it rather than the poor, and there's some chance of maintaining social, a cohesive society as you try to bring us back within the limits the planet can actually support. But this idea of having uh, sort of carbon points for everything, you get issued so many carbon points, and if you buy stuff, it's got carbon points associated with mm. that. How do, the the obvious question is how do you how do you track what the number that the carbon consumption is for everything you buy? So you go into a supermarket and you do your shop and you're told, well, okay, okay that's, if they can, if they that's can, 100 quid and 50 carbon points. If they can put if they can put car, a calorie content on the on the back of a pack of chips, they can put the carbon content as well. I mean, all this stuff mm. is already measured. There's so much. If you're going to get to sell a product in a in a supermarket, you've got to go through so many regulatory hoops already, um, uh, where those calculations have to be done and, and, and to some extent verified. It's another calculation, a large part of which you could actually imply 
uh, you'd, be able, you'd be potential to work out what is the energy content and therefore what is the carbon content of a huge range of products just by what we currently are. I mean, I've been looking at energy databases, as you can imagine, and they are quite detailed. The, the work the departments of energy around the world do to work out what amount of energy is used for what parts, processes, and which industry sectors, and what the flows are one point to another, a large part of the legwork is already there. It's just a case of making that legwork part of the monetary system so that when you buy, as well as paying the money price, you've got to pay the carbon price. Could there be a danger, though, that uh, when you start looking at... So, for example, going back to this $90 trillion global investment that's needed, the, you mm. know, for the Bank of England saying to uh, for, for new technologies to help mitigate the, the impact on the climate, uh, you know, a, a lot of that will be new infrastructure, and that's going to that's gonna use carbon points. You're going to have a... Oh, a, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, they, I mean you again, need carbon to make things that are going to solve the problem in the long term. Yeah, I mean, again, partly the whole objective here is to bring down the amount of energy we're consuming right now and to impose the fall in that energy on the wealthy rather than the poor. That's, mm. that's stage one, to make it feasible for that to happen. So if you did this, if we do talk about doing it prior to an economic and, and, and environmental catastrophe, uh, then in that prior period, because anybody who's consuming more than the average has to buy off others, you put a strong, as we, you said earlier, a strong pressure on them to want to buy products with a lower carbon content now, so much more effective than a carbon price, uh, and it's a redistribution at the same time, so people actually benefit, and you get people in a, a good state of mind uh, thinking about, uh, and this has to be politically brought about as well, a good state of mind about reduce, reducing the overall load on the planet uh, because that's going to f- mainly fall on the people who cause that load, not on the poor. Can you apply this just in one country? I mean, it's yeah, be you hard. could. Yeah, you don't have to do it globally. This is, uh, it's easy enough to work out, um, you know, what is the average per capita generation of carbon dioxide uh, in one country. And then you say, okay, we'll start the ration at that level. Uh, the central bank will give everybody a, a, an account where that, that is ration is paid in you know, weekly, whatever it might be. Weekly would be sensible, I think. Uh, a weekly flow of carbon credits. And then if you don't use them, they're saleable. And, and then that situation, the wealthy would be forced pretty much immediately to get out mm. there and start buying carbon credits. And you'd then have a distribution of money from the wealthy to the, to the poor. Um, selling their carbon credits. And yeah. that, doesn't, and doesn't work with the digital economy quite so much, though, does it? So if you look at, for example, so I read somewhere that the, uh, the, the global dent- data centers are responsible for as much uh, carbon dioxide as the airline industry. So you wouldn't set up a data center in England if you had that, uh, if that sort of stipulation. Uh, you'd, uh, you'd have one overseas and, uh, to, to try and get around it. So you are going to yeah, have I mean, problems like that. There are going to be obvious teething problems with anything like this, but that's, I want to have it in place before we, we hit a wall we're going to hit anyway. And mm. that's what really worries me is that if you don't have a structure in place to cope with having an accident, then what do you do after an accident? Well, you die or you go and... Yeah, you yeah it's too late by then, absolutely. It's too late. But just, yeah. on, just, just on that point, I mean, the, the road that we are going down, this online world, is that a good thing or a bad thing for the environment? It seems because these data centres are chewing up a, a great deal of energy. I, I read somewhere, and I, you know, I don't know whether it's true or not, but, you mm-hmm. know, just take the... Take, I mean, the, the point is valid. Uh, I think, you know, watching Netflix for half an hour is the same as driving for four miles in terms of the carbon footprint. Hmm. Yeah, you know, we are using things like that, which we don't even think we're destroying the planet while we're doing it, but we are because, because of course, anything you know, using energy is 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 putting a load upon the planet because we 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 mine the planet for the energy and we have to dump the waste energy 
into the biosphere. That's not as important because it actually radiates off. But what we do, if we're generating that using burning fossil fuels, then we're Mm. adding to the carbon dioxide level and increasing the amount of energy we're retaining. And that's one of, but by no means the only damage we're doing to the biosphere. But the one we have to most immediately address... Yeah, we should stop oh, this no, podcast yeah, then. We're, no, we're yeah. damaging the planet. We should all get together on Dartmoor and, and drink around an open fire uh, in midwinter. An open fire? And, uh, yeah, 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 sorry, I apologise. An, an open, open ice slab. An open ice slab. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, so look, I mean, uh, th- there is the argument, isn't there, as well, you know, that very often you get... Because it's the cohesion, isn't it, is the, is the problem that we face in trying to tackle this problem. You, gave, you have actually given the only concrete answer I've ever heard, actually. Uh, everyone else is there arguing well we need to do more of this and we need to do more of that and mm. uh, and often uh, you know ideas that are, have the best intent conflict with each other so mm. you know, like you and I, I think you and I have got different ideas on HS2 for example I look at the HS2 and I think you know it's going to use electricity it's going to get cars off the roads you know that, mm. that electricity could be green it's going to be faster I'm sure it's using up less uh, less energy per passenger than those diesel trains that we've got ferrying people around the UK at the moment and uh, and it's, it's going to have more capacity, so that's going to get more cars off the road. So if people are going to travel better than they travel on a high-speed rail network. But, of course, then you've got environmentalists who don't like it because it's going to cheer up bits of ancient woodland. I mean, I think that from an environmental point of view, I can see their point, but I think it's mm. better for the planet than putting up with cars and congestion. So you've got sort of environmentalists and uh, people who have the same aim. And at each other over each the other solutions, about, yeah. Uh, yeah, and we, we see that time and time again. Mm. And that's why the, the idea of carbon rationing, um, and by the way, I can't give Adam's last name, but there's a website called carbonrationing.org, which I found out about after I'd made the suggestion that Adam, who put the site together, had already thought up the idea himself. So I'm not, I'm not the first person to suggest it, but I think I've probably had uh, more, more capacity to make a noise about it. But yeah, mm. something like this, the, the beauty of it is 90 to 95% of the population would benefit from it immediately. And of course, it would be politically opposed by the wealthy because they're the ones who are going to lose. So it yeah. now becomes thing you've got to do at the political level. And I'd like to be the sort of thing I can get to the Greens, maybe the Labor Party, though God knows what that is in the UK and Australia these days. Uh, maybe the Democrats. I mean, Joe Biden looks pretty bloody good at the moment on this front. But something of this nature that means it's got a political appeal for at least 90% of the population, then you've got a chance of implementing it. I mean, you were against the uh, the old idea of the cap and trade scheme, weren't you, for mm. ap- applying it for for businesses? This is a much seems like a much more viable alternative to that. And I guess mm. a bit like the the cap and trade, you know, carbon trading schemes, you've got the ability that you can ramp it up over time as well, can't you? Yeah, you could change the average. I mean, if we find ourselves really in a catastrophic situation with the climate, and we've got to do something drastically now. Then you can reduce the ration, and that then hits uh, the poor to some extent, but it hits the rich a lot more. Uh, so you still have the same mechanism, redistribution mechanism. And, and that's what I think we, we need. Uh, because if, if we get, if you need, when you look at societies which have collapsed in the past, uh, one of my favorites is a place I've been to several times in Mexico called Teotihuacan. Uh, I don't know how many people have been there, but it's got the, the pyramids in Teotihuacan are larger than Cheops. Uh, the enormous uh, you know, pyramids for a powerful mm. civilization. I think about 200 BC to about 300 AD. Then it collapsed. Uh, when we look at when it collapsed, uh, archaeologists are now finding that there's all these strange carbon 
content inside the bigger homes in the property. It looks like when it, when it suddenly started to fall apart, the wealthy, the elite, were lynched and burnt to death by the poor. Uh, and, and that's, you know, if you look at a Nick Hanur, you know, I had a good conversation with Nick Hanur some time ago, the, poor, the pitchforks are coming. It's when, you, when the wealthy continue pushing you in a direction which leads to social breakdown, and then if it gets to the social breakdown point, the wealthy are alive at the time, they're the first ones to get skinned alive. And that's what happened mm. back with Tower to Walk. And uh, we face a similar thing here, so I, maybe you should get Nick on board and see if Nick willing to help us and support and push the idea to the Democrats and to other political parties that, that might jump on board. Right. So, um, yeah, you you have to take your word for it on the pyramids because no one's going to be able to go there because it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be That's so right. you need so many carbon points to get on a plane. Even if you want to go take a look on Google Earth, it's going to cost a few points of carbon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Okay. Very good. Well, then next week we'll see you all on Dartmoor. Uh, good to talk, Steve. And we'll <laughs> catch you next time. Thanks. Okay, mate. Bye. Absolutely love that idea. You know what? It would make me turn my computer off at night uh, for a start. You know, those behaviours, things that are just, you know, a little bit inconvenient. We might change our behaviour if we actually end up having to pay for it. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? Uh, please leave comments. Uh, I think it's a good discussion point, isn't it? Well, we'll be back again next time with another edition of the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.